doing multiple I'm multitasking. Yeah. Um well, you want to introduce our show? Oh, we do we doing the lead in? You might uh, as well. We're here. Yeah, okay. Wait, are we doing a show? Yeah. I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die this is the podcast that you are listening to called The Left is Dead. And uh, today we have a polar opposite guest to the guests that we had last time. And with me before that, as always, is my co-host, James Jimmy Carey. No, <laughs> Man, yeah, it's a cool week. We had Martin. Now we yeah, have fucking so yeah, we, we had and IQ. hardcore QAnon thought leader Martin Gettys. Thought. And once again, the critic side thinks I was we were way too easy on him. And I'm sure that the other side is gonna think we were too hard on him. There's no escaping from that really. But now today we're going to have the like I said, the diametrically opposed opposite ideology, which is Mike Rothschild, who is a conspiracy debunker and ardent QAnon critic. And just, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to hear what Martin had to say. I didn't fucking care. I mean, I, I care enough that I did this, but <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not gonna like challenge him. I just wanna hear what the fuck he had to say at this point, because here we are like right. mid-march mid and nothing's happened right and nothing uh, nothing's ever gonna happen well, i mean no but for i mean i i think the fundamental problem for for the q people is that they i think they have a bloated image in their head of how many people think like them i think they i think they think that it's like 30 maybe 40 or even 50 percent of the population thinks like that and wants that. And in reality, it's probably less than 1%. And to have any kind of massive revolution in a society, you got to be up in the 20% or more before things start collapsing. And, you know, it, we're just not even close to that in America. And that's granted, that's, that's granting that they're even right on anything, which they're not. I don't think that it's necessarily like, yeah maybe like hardcore q believers are that low but like the things that are part of their worldview definitely permeate much deeper you know like well true yeah like okay. the things like okay like no not in any way it's going to like form some revolutionary party or vanguard or anything but like the way like wayfair took off with like normies you know what i mean like yeah, but that's that's kind of like Mandela effect level of intellectual cognition. Like that that's that's more like a, oh shit, I've 
I'm on my lunch break and this is weird. You know, like that's not like a, yeah. a that's not a real thing. First of all, it's complete hogwash. So But afterwards there was still like save the children fucking rallies and shit that drew out like people who weren't necessarily like QAnon to like rallies hosted by like QAnon influencers and shit. Well, and, and helping children is a good thing. The fact of the matter is uh child trafficking is a insidious massive global problem yeah but and, they, uh, but it's just not connected to a luciferian elite cult of predators sucking their blood you know they got rubes to sign on to be like yeah i love children and this is it's like the post yeah, where people it's are like, it's it's like the posts where people are like i was at walmart and i saw a man and i think he was trying to take my children like they're, it, they're fighting not, against not, shadows it's not a difficult uh, task to get people to support children. I mean, that's like the, the yeah. easiest possible ideological task throughout <laughs> history is, uh, you know, think about the children, you know, that that's so that's and that's what they those are the heartstrings they pull at. And it, it gets kind of overwrought and pathetic at times. And, and I think, you know, that's they do themselves a disservice by by uh, trying to make everything about the children uh when some of these issues are just have nothing to do with with child trafficking like it's just it's not all connected and you know that's why it's going to be interesting to talk to a, a professional conspiracy debunker even though sometimes i have problems with conspiracy debunkers as a former conspiracy theorist myself but at the end of the day i i do think that there is a a kind of fundamental pathology that goes into wanting to connect all of these different things outside of you that you don't have control over in, and weaving them together in, into a common enemy that you have agency against. I think there's something very attractive about that for people. Yeah, read Marx. How many times do I have to fucking say it on this show? I think the Q people do themselves a disservice by breathing. How about that? That's, that's, that's Jim's answer to everything is read Marx. Well, I mean, hey, if you had some type of like class-based politics and some type of analysis of like or class consciousness in the United States, you'd have a lot different place. I mean, even like France and the UK have some like identity of like working class, which is something that doesn't exist in the United States because right. most people who are like working class think they're middle class, which whatever that is. Well, and that's, and that's what's interesting to me is that I, I think part of what QAnon people are aiming for with the Great Awakening, in my eyes, actually looks a lot like a classless Marxist society, but they're so horrified by the idea of socialism that they, they can't even consider the fact that by breaking down this kind of infrastructure of, of elite, of an elite predator class, uh, essentially what they would have is, is a, is a a functional working class that is in control of the means of production and oh. yeah so, i mean but but they're so but the, the propaganda against socialism and marxism is so strong that they they literally just will not even consider it i think joe biden is a marxist but yeah some of the loons definitely thought like oh there's going to be like med beds and free energy and shit like joe, that joe biden is a lieberman socialist Joe Biden is a fucking neoconservative yeah I know yeah I know. if he's, not he's literally it's like, not like 
on any traditional scale, Joe Biden would be considered a conservative. He might just be like a, the last Dixie crap. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. we're not supposed to say we're not supposed to say Dixie anymore. So he's just a crap. No, you're not. Well, the Dixie chicks changed their name to just the chicks. No, whatever. Which which just changed everything. I mean, it was such a powerful thing they did there that just when was this i don't even know i remember hearing about it and then i remember reading about like who in the hell is the chicks and i, was I like, haven't oh, that's the dixie chicks i haven't heard about them since the iraq war so i don't yeah know. that was pretty much the last time that they 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 were uh, they got they got themselves in trouble by talking out against the administration during the iraq war um yeah. So anyway, all right. So we set up. Yeah, what they got canceled. This show, yeah, yeah. They got, they were canceled by conservatives before cancel culture was a ridiculous, um, kind of ideological war for conservatives. Well, back then the left did political correctness, not cancel culture. Right. It was different. I'd like to do a whole show on cancel culture because I, I, I have a lot to say about it. But for today, we're we're about to dive back into this Q hole. So I hope you guys are ready uh, for that. And um, I think we're going to catch you on the other side and introduce our guest. The storm is here. Now comes the rain. Look out, y'all. The swamp is being being destroyed today. Power to the people is what I say. Trump is in office, things not going well. Your places are worship, maybe seals made them hell. I heavily fought, saw you dead indeed. Your weapons of destruction, your lust, your greed. Okay, so we are back, and our guest today is a conspiracy theory researcher and debunker, Mike Rothschild. And Mike has been um, analyzing the QAnon movement since the beginning. And he even has a book coming out about it, which I think we're going to get into later. Um, but I got into the QAnon movement early on. And basically, the three major people analyzing it were Mike, Travis View, and a, an account called Poker and Politics. And then on the other side, there were these main figureheads of the QAnon movement. Uh, you know, Martin Geddes, who we interviewed a few days ago. And there's kind of been this like war between them, ideological war, rhetorical war. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm happy to have Mike on this to get a, a different perspective on this. Because Mike, you've spent so much time researching and trying to debunk conspiracy theories. But what was it about specifically QAnon, especially at the beginning when it was still kind of a small thing? What was it about QAnon that made you think that this thing was different than a normal conspiracy and had a different kind of momentum and fuel to it? Sure. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here and talk about this stuff with people who understand it uh, as much as any of us can understand it, which isn't much these days, I feel like. Um, I QAnon caught my eye. And I guess it was December 2017 or maybe January 2018. Um, you know, time has no meaning right now. But I I started seeing some tweets about Hillary Clinton and John McCain wearing orthopedic walking boots to hide ankle bracelets that they were wearing because they'd secretly been arrested in a purge called the Storm. 
And I just thought that was amazing. I I just wanted every I wanted to know everything about that. That that immediately became my jam. But digging into it uh, within a, a month or two, I realized that it had a lot of similarities to these really long running affinity fraud scams. These things that you'll see floating around in the the kind of the QAnon community and some of these other fringe communities, things like Nasara and the Iraqi dinar scam, these, these affinity frauds where a small investment is uh, promised by a guru to turn into a gigantic amount of money. So you would, you know, you'd spend $1,000 to buy, um, you know, 10 million Iraqi dinars. And then at some point, the International Monetary Fund or President Obama or the UN or whoever is going to, you know, sign a document and all of those dinars are going to become the are going to go to the value that they had before the gulf war wow. when, when the dinar was like three dollars to one dinar the so RV. you know so your thousand dollar investment would be worth like three million dollars so, so and, basically they were betting on the collapse of the petrodollar you know yeah and, and what it was was in 1991 um you know, Kuwait had one of the most valuable currencies in the world. And of course, Iraq invaded Kuwait and their currency immediately collapsed. But then when the Gulf War was over and Iraq was expelled, Kuwait's currency rebounded to where it had been before. And so people looked at the Iraqi dinar. Uh, they're both called dinars, just to be even more confusing. Uh, people looked at the Iraqi dinar and thought, well, you know, Iraq's going to be a democracy and it's going to, you know, all the all the, the Ba'ath Party's going to get expelled and it's going to be this great new beginning and there's so much excitement and their their money is going to be, is going to gain value back to where it had been before the Gulf War and before the UN sanctions. And, you know, a lot of U.S. servicemen said, well, sure, I'll spend a hundred bucks and buy a hundred thousand dinar because, you know, maybe it'll, maybe my investment will double. Or trouble, but you had these gurus who were talking about getting these special contract rates of like thirty-two dollars for one dinar, and you had to you had to buy as many as possible to corner the market so the elites couldn't get them, and the elites didn't want you cashing out your dinars. They wanted to make the most money off of dinars. They invented this whole mythology and this whole like secret war to stop the revalue of the dinar. And you saw the same thing happen with one of these earlier scams called Nassara. Um, Nassara was an economic proposal that was started in the early 90s by this, uh, this professor named Harvey Bernard, uh, written in this book, ironically called Draining the Swamp, that would uh, basically erase all tax debt, uh, consumer debt, would put us on a flat tax, would repeg us to the gold standard. I mean, this sort of really utopian stuff. And he printed out a thousand copies of it he sent it to Congress and thought, well, they'll, they'll, they'll put it into law and you know, everything will be great. And of course, Congress never touched it. So somehow Nassara got online and it was picked up by the victims of this other fraud called Omega. And it was turned into this same kind of scam. This, you put in a little bit of money and you get this gigantic return. And it was the same wow. kind of secret war, like a uh, you know, battle between good and evil. And the 9-11 attacks were carried out to stop the Nassara prosperity packets from being delivered on that day that would have released trillions of dollars and, and brought the, the poor up to the level of the rich. I mean, this really utopian stuff that was all powered by this, this secret intel. So very much like Q, you had a guru who knew things that other people didn't know and the knowledge was being suppressed. 
The only difference in Q uh, with these other things was that QAnon wasn't selling a financial instrument. There was no investment component. There was no great financial payoff. The payoff was the execution of your enemies and the destruction of the dark cabal. And I thought, this is really troubling because there's, there's no way to rein this in. It's not illegal to say this stuff online. And right. you know, Q's not threatening anybody. It's just saying all of these things that are happening behind the scenes and people got really into it and there was no financial risk to it. So that's when I really started to get concerned about QAnon. So that, that's a really, really long answer. Wow, so, but, it's, but it's a fascinating one because I honestly didn't know much about those early uh, kind of scam components, but it makes total sense now to think about there being a base level kind of financial motivation behind it. But then I guess my next question would be then, so how did that aspect of it merge with this kind of Christo-fascist, uh, uh, I, I don't even know how to put it, this, I mean, well, the, the idea of a deep state had been in the works uh, on the conservative side for a while, this idea of a kind of synergistic revolving door relationship between the military industrial complex, Wall Street, the national security state, all of these different uh, instruments of power that came into sharper focus after 9-11. So how, how did these scam, how did this scam culture online merge with what the basic structure of QAnon? Yeah, it's important to note that Q never talked about anything like the Dinar or Nasara. That was never apparent in the drops. I sort of put all that together just because I'd studied that stuff before. But what you really had was this idea of this great event that was going to happen. You know, this, this world shattering event that's gonna change everything. It's, nothing's gonna be the same afterwards. And that for something like the dinar was the revalue. You know, the, 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 the financial document would be signed and everybody who owned dinars would be rich. With QAnon, it was a more abstract concept. It was the storm. It was this, this great purge that was supposed to happen. And it fit in really well with the story that was created in those initial Q drops. Because those first hundred or so Q drops are, are very different than everything else. And they really tell kind of a, a techno thriller. It's, there's a very Tom Clancy aspect to it. So you had this idea of this great event being passed along by this, this, in, this guru who had the access to the secret knowledge. And that dovetailed perfectly with, not only with the story that Q was telling, but with this extant belief in the all-powerful deep state, whether you want to call it that, the deep state. I mean, that term um, originates from Turkey in the 1990s to describe the, the confluence of the military and the government and right. law enforcement. But you go back even further, you've got the, you know, the 80s concept of the New World Order, you've got things like the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, and you go back further than that, it's like the, you know, the great communist infiltration of the 1950s, you go to the Freemasons, the Catholics, the Jews, you know, always the Jews, there's always some giant octopus that's pulling all the strings and manipulating all the events. Q was just different in that it gave you a way to fight back. Whereas almost all these other conspiracy theories are about, here's this huge organization. Y you can't do anything to them. They will destroy you. They control your life. All you can do is know about it. 
But with Q, it's not just knowing about it, it's fighting back. So that was the, the, the really compelling part of QAnon was merging this secret knowledge with this war that you can participate in. And it really makes for kind of a terrifying combination. Right. And they, and they also drew in, uh, you know, part of all conspiracies are elements of truth. So they, they, they will draw in uh, real conspiracies. For example, Project MKUltra or Operation Mockingbird. And Operation Mockingbird ended up becoming kind of a siren song of this idea of the media being completely infiltrated and in a, in a complete uh, apparatus of, of the deep state. Uh, and, but then they just took it so much further. They took it to a point of, of advocating extrajudicial executions and all that kind of thing. Um, at what point in your, in your research, because you know, like I said, you were on there from the beginning. I was on there, I think, you know, I was researching QAnon, I think, probably around 2017. And I've been telling, I was telling people, I was telling all my friends, this, this is different, this is really weird. And these people will not stop. This is a force to be reckoned with. And I was talking about it to anyone who would listen and sure enough, it blew up and you were right there as well. Like it, what, what do you think triggered uh, the QAnon movement to become uh, part of the zeitgeist like this. I mean, is this is? Do you think that this is a, a signal that uh, a larger percentage of people than we thought are ready for some kind of global revolution, or do you think this this is just some kind of uh, you know return of Christ type fantasy? I think it's a lot of things to a lot of different people. You know, QAnon caught on really, really fast. And one of the things I realized in, in working on the book and really examining those first, that first week or two of QAnon is that people, you know, the first few drops, it was like, okay, what's, what's going on here? But really pretty early on, I think the Anons on 4chan started to get really into the story. And I think it was partially just because it was told in a really interesting way. It was laid out in a very like, this is gonna happen in a week and I'm gonna lay out all of the clues that are gonna point there you know, point to what's going to happen and you're going to understand it and everybody else is going to be totally in the dark. But I think one of the reasons why it caught on so quickly on 4chan right away is just, it was about Hillary Clinton and a lot of other anons, you know, the, these sort of anonymous accounts that pretended to be really important. You, you know, you had like White House Insider Anon and FBI Anon and Victory of the Light and all of these other accounts that were just, they were just goofing off. They were just telling stories, but Q was different in that it was about a very specific thing that these people really wanted to see happen, which was Hillary Clinton and her inner circle getting taken down. And like you were saying, there is truth to the idea that the Clintons are a very powerful family who have gotten away with a lot of things that the rest of us can't get away with. And they're connected to more power than the rest of us are connected to. And, and there was something very appealing about sort of this sort of patriotic uprising against these people that had been untouchable before then. And it, it took off very quickly from there. It got very popular on social media very quickly, um, Twitter and, and especially on Reddit. And by the end of 2017, just a couple months in, these, you know, two of the biggest evangelists for QAnon were on InfoWars and they'd reached, they reached a huge audience and it happened very, very quickly. But then after a while, it was like Q kind of platformed. Like there, were, there weren't more people coming into it. 
until you had the pandemic. And the pandemic just changed everything with in terms of QAnon and in terms of the conspiracy landscape in general. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to what you talked about. In fact, it's, it's funny you mentioned InfoWars because that's much more of the traditional conspiracy model, isn't it? It's the, you can't do anything but give me money. Whereas right. QAnon's not for like a financial gain for any, for anyone at a particular voice or top person or anything. There's obviously a bunch of grifters around the thing, right. but there's no central person like an Alex Jones. But I think, you know, you bring up a good point. Do you think it's the kind of, especially when Q goes dark, I notice the the theories get real off the wall. Like when Q disappears for a while, do you think it's the connect the dots nature that really draws people into this? Because they're allowed to basically, like Jake said, everything is consumed into this conspiracy at this point. Like they're basically allowed to, you know, connect anything they want into this great awakening or Trump or whatever. Do you think oh, that's sure. part of the appeal? Sure. Yeah. The, that, that kind of dot connecting is a huge part of what makes QAnon so appealing. It's that, that sort of fake idea of secret knowledge of, you know, something that the normal world doesn't know and doesn't want to know about and isn't being told, but you, you can see what's really going on. And that's really appealing to people, especially when you have this, this time, especially with, especially with the Trump years where everything is moving so fast and so much is going on. And so it's very easy to connect everything that happens everywhere to this secret war that Q has created. So whether it's, uh, you know, a plane crash in Seattle or, you know, some mayor of some little town resigning in a sex scandal, like it, they're all sort of battlefronts in this enormous secret war that's happening in real life and in the digital space. And the, the Q people are fighting sort of the digital battle and they're leaving it up to like the military intelligence pros to fight the, the real life battle. But yeah, that idea of connecting the dots, of seeing the things that other people don't see, it's a way that Q believers feel special and feel like what they're doing matters because otherwise they're, you know, what are they doing? They're just sort of trapped in this world where progressivism is, is taking over and Trump is being thwarted at every opportunity and all of these things he promised aren't happening you know, they don't want to live in that world. They want to live in the world where they get to be digital soldiers and where Mike Flynn is not a, you know, didn't lie to the FBI because he's a grifting criminal. He did it on purpose to, to snuff out the real bad guys. I mean, it's, it's building right. the reality that you want to live in. Right. Yeah. And it seems like there's definitely an element of agency to it. Uh, you know, I, there's been studies done recently about the mind of the conspiracy theorist. And like you said, it has a lot to do with wanting to feel like you're in a special in-group that has access to information that the outside world, which has traditionally persecuted you and turned their back on you, they can't understand this information. So it elevates you to this special level of autonomy and power that you never had before. And I think it gets especially dangerous. And because I, 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 you mentioned COVID and I feel like that's especially important to this because the element of science denialism in the QAnon movement to me is one of the most dangerous and, and noxious parts of it. Uh, take us through that transition of when COVID, I mean, al already the QAnon people are absolute science denialists when it comes to climate change, uh, it, all, all those kinds of things, which is, you know, pretty, pretty bad. But then you get COVID, you get 
anti-maskers. Uh, take us through that transition uh, to, uh, to the COVID years. Sure. So QAnon for that first sort of two plus years really was just about this idea of the, the purge of the deep state. So, you know, the storm and the mass arrests and all this stuff. And then with the, with the pandemic, what you found was not so much QAnon kind of reaching out to new people. There wasn't like a mass proselytizing effort. Q was actually very quiet during the early stages of the pandemic. There was, re there was really very little coming out of Q that wasn't related to the election. Uh, what you had was people who were suddenly isolated, who were at home, who maybe had either lost their job or had to figure out how to work from home, how to raise their kids from home, cut off from their social circles, from their families, from all the things they like to do. And rather than say, well, this is all the effort that we have, we all have to pitch in, you know, we all have to do our part to slow the spread of this thing. They took it as an attack on themselves and they looked for answers for what was really going on. And especially if you have far right sort of MAGA people, they're not going to look at something like COVID and think of it as a policy failure of the Trump administration, because you can't, you can't ever think that Donald Trump is not a success at something. And if he did fail, he only failed on purpose so that he could set up a bigger win later on down the road. I mean, that's, that's the way these people's minds work. So they were looking for answers to how this could have gotten so bad so quickly, but they couldn't actually place any of the blame on the governmental institutions who made it go so badly so quickly. So they found alternate answers. They found China, they found Bill Gates, they found 5G internet, they found big pharma, they found vaccines. And so they started to go into those Facebook groups and they would be recommended other Facebook groups. So if you had a, if you joined an anti-Bill Gates group, if you thought COVID was a creation of Bill Gates to stop Donald Trump from getting reelected, and you'd never, you'd never heard of QAnon at that point, you join this anti-Bill Gates Facebook group and it recommends an anti-5G Facebook group to you. And you go, oh, I don't like 5G. I've heard that's bad. You join that. And then it recommends a Facebook group for the Great Awakening. And you go, oh, I like the sound of that. I, I want a great awakening. And you have just suddenly radicalized yourself into QAnon without having any intention of doing so. And the same thing happened with a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters. A lot of these people were already anti-vaxxers, already anti-Bill Gates, anti-5G internet, anti-Wi-Fi you know, wi -Fi and Big Pharma and all of those touchstones. And they would go through the same journey. They would go from anti-vaccine or anti-5G to another one that was in that same category. And then they'd find QAnon. And a lot of it was driven by the pedophilia hysteria, by the save the children stuff, because you know everybody wants to save children. And a lot of it was driven by just loathing of Hillary Clinton, because of course, you know, both the, the a lot of the hardcore Bernie Sanders people and a lot of the hardcore Donald Trump people all loathe Hillary Clinton. So everybody was sort of brought together under this big tent, and this big tent was QAnon. Yeah. That was one thing Jake and I kind of talk about in the intro. This is, I think, uh, maybe we didn't have it on record, but we talked about the save the children thing. And that was kind of leading into the pandemic. Um, you know, was is that similar to the pandemic? Because I noticed a lot of people who are not political, and it's obviously anecdotal, but I noticed a lot of people who aren't political who don't normally care or anything, you know, they don't follow any issues or anything like that, suddenly get involved with either if just by hashtag or going out for it, like save the children or a lot of like 
you know, normies falling for um, the Wayfair conspiracy and stuff like that. Do yeah. you think that was a big pipeline into Q for that time, like pre-pandemic and kind of into the early pandemic, really? Yeah, that was huge, kind of more in the sort of the second wave. You really started to see that over the summer of 2020. You know, a lot of the people who came into it initially were brought into it by just straight up COVID conspiracy theories. You know, it was like Oprah's getting arrested because she's a trafficker and the lockdown is being done to, you know, rescue the children and that stuff. But it wasn't that hashtag save the children thing. That happened a little bit later because the social media companies finally realized that QAnon was a problem they needed to do something about. And they finally started to crack down on some of the iconography. So some of the, you know, where we go one, we go all hashtags and the, you know, the really hardcore conspiracy stuff started to get reined in by Twitter and Facebook. So they moved over to this Save the Children movement, which was already a real thing. You know, a lot of, there was, there's always been child trafficking hysteria you know, sex ring hysteria, stuff like that. And it, it proved to be a very easy fit for people who were becoming radicalized into QAnon because QAnon has always revolved around trafficking, around, you know, Pizzagate and, uh, and Jeffrey Epstein stuff. So it fit together really well. And the big QAnon promoters kind of recognized how good of a fit it was. And they started talking about Save the Children. They started talking about you know, trafficking and this Wayfair thing, which was just huge, huge conspiracy theory. All of that stuff fits really well together. So in order to not get deplatformed, they moved over to this idea of save the children because you can't really deplatform that. You know, you can't, you can't ban the idea of helping children. Like that's like, that's a thing that most people are in favor of. So it, it proved to be a very natural next step in the evolution of Q during the pandemic. You're but right that I can't remember time. I, the, my timeline's all <laughs> over. <laughs> let's uh, address the elephant in the room, which is something that I always predicted was coming, which was uh, a, an actual uh, mini insurrection. And I predicted it would happen. I predicted eventually there would be asymmetrical civil war and I still believe that we're just seeing the beginning of it and it's gonna happen a lot more. Now, to be fair, not all of MAGA is QAnon and not really all of QAnon is pro-MAGA, but what we saw on January 6th was a massive cross-pollination of different ecosystems all converging, but we, it was organized and it had militia elements to it and it scared the hell out of everyone and I'm glad it did because uh, it was it was inevitable, and I think it still is inevitable. What is your take on January six, uh, just in terms of how it came about, how it was covered, and whether we can expect to see more of this? Yeah, the whole stolen election um, mythology was the, the January six was basically the end result of that stolen election mythology. That was not something that started after the election. That started in 2019. I mean, really before then. It it started with Donald Trump in 2015, talking about how the election was going to be fraudulent. 2016, how how much voter fraud there was. And, you know, here you have a candidate who won the 2016 election and was still complaining about how it was rigged. You know, this is how deeply this fake voter fraud idea is enmeshed into modern conservatism. 
And with QAnon, it started up very, very quickly once the, the ball really started to get rolling for the 2020 election. And especially when Biden won the, the, the nomination, and I guess it was March of, of 2020, right around as the pandemic was starting, you had this year-long drumbeat that Donald Trump could not win, could not lose the election if the election was free. If it was a fair election, there was no possible way Joe Biden could win because Biden was a, a decrepit husk. He was barely a candidate. He was barely alive. He was the you know picked out by the deep state because he had the, the you know he was the sort of had the most Chinese money to him. And it was all these all these ridiculous reasons. But the, the core of it was, if the election was free and fair, Trump couldn't lose. And of course, Trump loses. So by that logic, the election was not free and fair. So what happened on January 6th, this gathering of people, really had been started at the beginning of the year. This idea that the election was going to be fraudulent if Biden won. And if Biden won, the, the fraud had to be exposed. And that's what they rationalized themselves into, that Trump was going to win the whole time. It was going to be a landslide. Everything was going to be fine. But he had to pretend to lose in order to snuff out the corruption, in order to expose how rigged the election was. Trump actually had to pretend to be the loser for a while. And then, of course, you're getting to a point where none of these lawsuits are working. The counties are certifying their vote totals. The states are certifying their vote totals. The Electoral College votes and the Electoral College certifies the vote. Like, all of these things that were supposed to happen to expose the fraud, none of them happened. You know, the Supreme Court wanted absolutely nothing to do with anything involving the election. They all thought the Supreme Court was going to be their their savior, that the Supreme Court was going to expose the fraud. So finally, you get to January 6th, and it's two weeks before the inauguration. And they are now, they're desperate, they're panicked, they're angry, they're violent. And they're being led on by someone who is telling them that all they have to do is take action and everything's going to be fine. They're going to get what they want. Mike Pence is going to pull out the Pence card at the last moment. And, you know, the, the fraud's going to be exposed. Go down there to the Capitol. Go tell them what's going on. Show them who's show them who's right. Go. I'll be marching there with you. And of course, by the time they get there, he's, you know, Trump is gone. He's, he's not marching with these people. And they get to the Capitol and then there's no security. And there's like a, a couple dozen Capitol Police officers and some barricades. And they breach the barricades and they get past the Capitol security and they get into the building. And I, I wasn't at all surprised that they marched on the Capitol. I was shocked they got in. I mean, you don't ever expect, you know, insurgents to get in the seat of American government, something that hasn't happened since 1812. But the fact that they were that they were there, that they were violent, that they were completely drunk on these conspiracy theories. That didn't surprise me at all. And I don't know how it could have surprised anybody. Well, get, given that, um, as you said, progressivism is growing, the demographics of the country are changing, and whites who are afraid of being a minority in their own country seem to be getting more radicalized by the day. Uh, in the buildup to thinking that the whole board was going to be flipped. Durham, Durham was going to release his report. Yeah. We were going to see D-class. We were going to see perp walks of Hillary Clinton. And I agree yeah. with you, the hatred of Hillary Clinton is one of the guiding principles of this. 
do you think that this anger, I, I can't see how this anger isn't just going to keep growing and metastasizing into new forms of radicalized militia movements. Do you see that happening or do you see us being able to contain it now? Oh, I think it's going to keep growing. I, I don't, I, I don't think it has anywhere to go. I mean, there's no healthy outlet for feeling like progressivism has changed the world you, you grew up in. You, you don't accept it. You don't learn to live with it. You get angry about it and you want to, you want to do something about it. You want it to be the way it was before. And Donald Trump promised to make things the way they were before. Well, that's not Joe Biden. You know, he's, he's not going to do that. So you, you either walk away from it, and we know time and time again that people who join cult-like movements or coercive movements or conspiracy theories, when presented with disconfirmation, with presented with failure, they don't walk away. They just dig in harder. So I don't see any reason why these people who are watching their way of life change are not going to just continue down this path of radicalization. And that's why the idea of de-radicalization is something we are very, very quickly realizing that we have absolutely no idea how to do. We have no idea how to get people out of these movements. And I think that as we struggle with the idea of how to help these people and, and realize that most of them don't want to be helped, I think what we're running into are sort of two, two groups of people going in the opposite direction. These, these people who are radicalized are getting more and more angry and more and more violent. They're having a Republican party that is catering more and more to them with this endless well of petty grievance that we've seen in the last couple of months. And then we have people on the left who are just really coming to terms with how bad this has all gotten and that this is not a joke. This is not something that we can write off as a few kooks on a farm in camo with AR-15s. Like this is a serious problem and nobody who wants to help make it better has any idea how to do it. And we have a social media uh, environment that is uh, uniquely catered to amplifying, uh, you know, uh, al algorithms that are, are essentially uh, about uh, creating an echo chamber that makes the person want to keep clicking uh, and keep engaging. And so these algorithms, uh, as we've seen, are basically feeding this, this anger, feeding these, these dopamine drifts of, of outrage. Uh, and I, I think I heard a report about people studying uh, the nature of radicalization and how social media has fed it are saying that there is no short fix. In fact, they're saying that it could be 40 to 50 years before we can reverse the damage that has taken place in the last 10 years with social media radicalization. Um, I don't know, it's crazy. Jim, do, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. What, where do they kind of go from here? I guess we'll get into this and you know, in your book, but I mean, what, you know, as for, you know, we talked to Martin a couple days ago, Martin Gettys, like Jake said, yeah. and <laughs> he took away from the sixth that, not that it was a false flag by Antifa, but that it was a false flag by someone to steal the laptops for data connecting like Pelosi to China and things like yeah. that. So like, what, what do they think is next? Because I know some of them thought, March 4th was something and then some of them backed away from that pretty early and 
I know it's all split and it's hard to say who believes what, but I mean, what are some of the theories that are popular at this point? You know, I think just in general with QAnon, what you have right now is a is sort of a cultish movement that has no leader. Um, that's one of the reasons why I've always hesitated at just straight up calling QAnon a cult because it doesn't really have that charismatic leader. And right now there's no one in charge of it at all. There's, you know, there's no Q making drops anymore and there may never be another Q drop. You know, Trump is is out of office and sort of raging in, in Mar-a-Lago and has no real impact. And none of the promoters have really stepped up to the point where they are the single guiding force in the QAnon movement. You know, they, they kind of painted themselves into the corner with the idea that, you know, Q was the leader and that Q would only ever post on 8chan and, you know, anything else is fake. So now there's no Q. So there's no, no one's pointing these people in any one particular direction. So they're going all over the place. But I think what we're going to see in the next few months, maybe the rest of the year, is a refocusing on what they are waiting for. You know, Q is a prophetic movement. And the prophecy that they clung to from October 2017 up until January 20th of this year was the storm, was the, the mass arrests. You know, the, the hundreds of thousands of indictments would be unsealed and the, the deep state would be annihilated and there would be the perp walks and there would be, you know, the, the memos and the reports and the investigations and the declassification and like the, the, you know, the corruption would be laid bare for everyone to see. And then we would, you know, go into utopia and everything would be perfect. And none of that is going to happen now. So what they are waiting for has changed. And I think what they're waiting for is Trump to be restored to office. They oh. still think Biden is not the legitimate president. They're finding all of these goofy loopholes about, well, you know, he he didn't give the State of the Union in a certain amount of days, or, you know, there's some gematria code somewhere that says something. I mean, ridiculous stuff. Yeah, he swore in on the Quran. Right, yeah. There's, there's <laughs> always going to be some stupid thing that gives them a little bit of hope to cling to that the election really was stolen and that it's just taken this long to get all of the pieces in place and all of the players where they're supposed to be and that it's all going to be revealed and, you know, Biden will concede whatever that means and Trump will retake office and then we'll be right back to where we were before when also nothing was actually happening. So, right. you know, they, they, they want the, the status quo restored when the status quo was not giving them what they wanted. Right. They're, they're clinging, they're clinging to hope. And well, yeah, in my, Mike, so, sorry to interrupt. I didn't mean to sure. step on, step on the end of your statement. No, okay. I, I've argued from the beginning that this is a uniquely spiritual religious movement. If you, the vast majority of vocal QAnon followers are hardcore Christians and they believe that the nature of their beliefs are really Christo-fascist in nature. And if, even if you look at the nature of how they're waiting, it feels very much like waiting for the second coming of Christ. There's all of this religious iconography and statements about darkness to light, God always wins. Uh, you know, it, it, there's almost a triumvirate, almost a new holy trinity, uh, trinity uh, of, of, of God, Q, and Trump. And the deification of Trump is very much a part of this. 
I, I can't help but conclude that this is a kind of splinter uh, group of a kind of Christo-fascist ideology. Do you, do you think there's any credence to that? Oh, I definitely think so. I think there, if you look at some of the great prophetic movements of the last few centuries, you know, you look at the, the Millerites or you look at the, you know, the, the Seekers UFO cult and when prophecy fails, it's the same thing. I mean, it is a very second coming style movement, you know, the, where the, you know, nobody knows the date except the, the one guru and the date's always changing and there's always new information coming. There's always something new to wait for, but yeah, they're, they're waiting for deliverance. You know, this isn't, this isn't like they're waiting for some financial instrument to pay off. They're waiting for good to triumph over evil. And if you are waiting for literally God to vanquish Satan, you're going to keep waiting and you're going to do whatever you feel like you need to do to help speed that along. And that's why this movement is so dangerous is because it's so participatory. It, it, it is so, in, it, it so involves its believers. It's not just about passively waiting. It's about actively doing stuff to, to join into the fight. And that's, that's why this is such a uniquely violent and troubling movement, because it is absolutely based in this messianic second coming idea that, that worships Trump as this divine figure. A lot of them really believe that Trump was chosen by God to be the president and to usher in this time of great light. And what do you do when that doesn't happen? You don't suddenly stop believing it. You just find a different way to believe it. They're definitely Adventists in a way, you know, and I think, uh, do you also think that, you know, like the idea of the anointed, like they have this, they have this knowledge that nobody else has. Do you think this is like the part of like the Protestant, like Calvinist sort of streak in American religion? Yeah, it really is. It's, it's that, that like waiting for the second coming thing of like, if we just work hard enough and we believe hard enough, you know, there, there's a reason why it, it why Q spends a lot of time quoting the Bible and you know, quoting things like Ephesians and quoting revelations and talking about how God wins. I mean, it's very much like we are holy warriors and, and you don't, you don't quit on a crusade. Like you will, if your candidate loses an election, you'll be disappointed. You'll be sad. You'll maybe be angry, but you'll, you'll move on eventually and you'll find a new candidate and you'll be fine. But if you are somebody who thinks of themselves as a crusader, if, if you literally believe God is with you, you don't think you can lose. And that's where a lot of this kind of hanging on to QAnon after Trump has been, you know, taken out of office comes from. It's the feeling of divine victory, of feeling like God has touched you on the shoulder and, and drafted you into his great army. You're not, you, you don't want to disappoint God. So you keep, <laughs> you keep fighting and you, you get ever more desperate in your, in your battle. I mean, it's, it's a very scary ideology. It is. And, and, and Mike, and speaking of the danger, uh, I, I have to ask you, and I'm sure I know the answer, but I, I'm assuming you have personally received death threats, especially given your last name, which of course people ridiculously think you're connected to the, <laughs> Illumina the Illuminati. Right. Uh, but have, have you received uh, like personal threats, death threats through social media? You know, I, I've actually been fairly lucky in that I've, I've gotten a lot of 
a lot of crap. You know, a lot of, you know, ever since I started writing about conspiracy theories, it was like, oh, of course a Rothschild would say that. But I've never, I've never felt unsafe. Like I've never, I haven't been doxxed. Um, I, I don't know what it is. Like maybe my information is just hard to find or maybe it's just not that interesting. But I would say that the level of harassment that I get is not even close to the level of harassment that any woman in any public facing job gets. Right, right. Or, or Mike, maybe they think you're a white hat. Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll occasionally search for my name in QAnon channels, um, you know, just to kind of to see what's going on. And I, I was uh, cruising around um, greatawakening.win, which is one of the kind of their new Reddit board. Um, very hardcore QAnon, like very true believers. And I, I searched for my name and it was a lot of like, you know, his family's going to get it, you know, the, you know, the Kazarian mafia inbreeding, but like, it's not personally threatening me and anything they think they know about me is so laughably wrong <laughs> that like, like I can't even, it's almost like I can't even get upset about it. Right. Well, Mike, uh, let's, let's talk about your, your book a little sure. bit. What, what, um, first of all, how long uh, have you been writing it? I know you've been probably researching it for, you know, four years at least. Uh, how, how long have you been writing it and what, uh, did you have a specific goal in mind, uh, with, with what you wanted to do with the book? Sure. So I actually, um, I started pitching the book in the summer of 2019 and we just didn't get any interest in it at all. Like nobody got it. Nobody cared. Nobody thought it was anything other than a joke. And I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll figure something else out. And then when you, when we started getting the pandemic and I started seeing, the enormous growth of QAnon. And I started getting contacted by media outlets about Q. Like I hadn't been doing a lot of interviews at that point anymore, but I started getting contacted about QAnon and the pandemic. And I reached out to my book agent. And I said, I think there's something here. I think we, we need to think about taking this out again. And, you know, once things sort of become a little more normal, my, my agent to her credit was like, no, let's do it now. Like, we don't want to wait. Like, let's get it out there right now. So I rewrote the pitch and I, we started to send it out and we got interest right away. I mean, like things had just changed, you know, suddenly this was a really going concern. And I, I wrote it um, over about six months. Um, I did about a month's worth of interviews and then spent about five months uh, working on the text and actually just got back the line edited manuscript. Um, you know, there's still more to do, but you know, little tweaks here and there, but it's, it's, it's come, it's come along really well. And my, my goal overall with it, and I talked about this with my editor really early on was to write something that somebody who had only heard of QAnon, but knew nothing about it could read this book and understand it. So, <clears throat> you know, I tried to keep things really simple. I didn't want to get really deep into the technical weeds of stuff. Like anytime I started talking about like the technical aspects of how 8chan worked, my editor is like, I don't understand this at all. Nobody gets this. You got to simplify it. I'm like, okay, like I'm not, this is not necessarily a book for the person who's been studying QAnon for three years, though I do think that person will find things in it that they don't know about. Um, there are, there's a court case involving QAnon that has never been reported on that's in the book. Right. Um, there are a number of survivor stories, uh, ex-believer stories that have never been in the media that are in the book. Um, so there, there is going to be quite a bit 
new for the hardcore Q watcher to discover. And for the person who really just doesn't know anything about it other than it's bad, you will learn everything you need to know, the, the basics of it, why people believe it, how it spread, and sort of ultimately what we can do to help people who are sucked into it. Well, to, to your publisher and uh, editor's credit, uh, it's, it's a, a bold move. I, I actually, I pitched a, a, a QAnon-based book regarding uh, some of the, the true crime elements, the court mm. cases. Yeah. And my publisher was like, no, we're not, we're not touching QAnon with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> uh, and so, that, you know, that's, but it's, I, I commend you for, for going hard after this. And uh, I think it's going to be, I'm excited to read it because I, I think you're, you know, you have your finger on the pulse of kind of what's going on here. And, uh, but you, at the same time, you seem uh, empathetic to the people who have gotten tied up in this just because they have elements of their life where they feel lost and they're looking for, for deliverance. And so I think you bring a, a humanizing uh, touch to this. Uh, when, when do, uh, when does that book come out? Do you know October. October. Beginning of October. Yeah. And you can pre-order it now. Um, you can get it on the, the website of the publisher, Melville House, um, Amazon, um, bookshop, anywhere you can buy books, you can buy this book. Yeah. I, I, I'd be, well, James, James. Go yeah. Ahead. I think that, um, I don't know the stories of people who like have family members or who went through this radicalization they're always a real bummer but they're always real educational as far as you know a, a lot of people you know you hear the stories on like uh, i don't know on like QAnon anonymous and things like that yeah. of just like people who are have relatives or somebody they know almost to the left who kind of went down this rabbit hole and stuff like that a lot of times it's older people obviously sure. But yeah, it, it's a bummer to learn, but it's really educational as far as like how people end up going down this hole. And I, I, I'm interested to read about people who've actually come out of it themselves because I haven't seen too much of those. Yeah, you, you don't have a lot of those stories yet. You, we've started just in the last couple of months to see some more you know, mainstream media coverage of people who've left QAnon behind. But one of the, one of the problems with that is so many people who have sort of figured out how to get out of this, how to sort of de-radicalize themselves, had to, you know, kind of had to work through that journey without any help. You know, there's no resources right now for how, for what you do when you leave a coercive conspiracy theory movement. And a lot of people are embarrassed. You know, a lot of, a lot of the people that I spoke to did not want their real names used. They didn't, they didn't want their info out there. They didn't want people knowing that they believe that they used to believe in this and you don't have that very uh that very vocal very fearless contingent of people who used to be in this movement and are speaking out against it now the way you do with you know some of the really fundamentalist mormon sects or scientology or things like that where you've got these very vocal very fearless apostates who are very good at telling their story you, you just don't have that with QAnon yet and i think you will at some point, but you don't have it now. So it's very hard to find those stories. That's why you kind of keep say, seeing some of the same people over and over. Mike, uh, I'd be remiss to have you a conspiracy debunker on the show and not <laughs> sure. ask you about one of the most 
popular trafficked conspiracy theories of our time, one that has uh, earned credit even from some of the most hardcore skeptics and conspiracy debunkers out there. And that is, of course, Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to get your take on what, what you think the chances are, uh, because of course, unsurprisingly, QAnon has of course absorbed the Epstein conspiracy as it has sure. absorbed every conspiracy. What's your take on the Epstein conspiracy? Do you think it's possible that he was killed? I mean, if you look, if you drill down into it, there's a lot of really suspicious things that went on there. And then maybe even how has that been uh, used by QAnon? Sure. So in terms of the, the Epstein thing, when it happened, I think it was it was either a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning because um, I was up with my kids and I was just sort of absently checking Twitter and I started to see about Epstein. I was like, oh, my God, here we go. <laughs> this is going to be the Super Bowl and conspiracy theories. And I get it. You know, I, I completely understand why there are so many conspiracy theories about his death, because this was sort of one of those things that wasn't supposed to happen. You know, we, you know, you never think of a high profile person who's in prison as being able to kill themselves. Like that's just not, that's not supposed to happen. He's supposed to be tried. He's supposed to see justice. So I completely understand why it immediately became such a meme, like from the left and from the right, like Epstein didn't kill himself. Like I, I completely understand why people got, you know, got on board with that. But what, I guess what I would ask with that is, tr is try to boil it down to, like you were saying, those really simple facts. And so you have Epstein, who is a very powerful guy, who is about to go through something that he's never had to go through before, which is real accountability, which is a real reckoning for what he's done. And here you have a guy who, for his entire professional life, has been able to basically get away with whatever he wants. And, it, and without any... I mean, he did a little bit of time in prison, but he got like work release to go to his office and, you know, molest more women. I mean, it's like this guy never really faced accountability. And here he is in a position where he's staring down the barrel of never being free again. Like he's going to get convicted and he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And he's in a prison where he probably can grease some palms and give out some money can kind of get what he wants. And if what he wants is to end his own life, he's going to find a way to do it. He's going to, he's going to do what he has to do to get the implements and things like the, you know, the, the guards um, not checking his cell and the cameras being broken. I mean, yeah, maybe the guards got paid off. Maybe somebody broke the cameras or maybe it's just an old rundown prison where things don't work very well anymore. And maybe the guards are just lazy and not particularly good at their jobs and don't really care what Jeffrey Epstein does. So I guess I would, I would ask people to try to ask themselves, does it have to be a conspiracy? Does it have to be that he was murdered? Could it be that he was able to take his own life and, one, and some of the ways that helped him were just the kind of neglect and ineptitude of the of the people running the prison. And I, and that's where I am with it. Like, I think he probably did kill himself. And I also understand why people think he didn't. And in terms of QAnon, Q, you know, Q believers will say, well, Q blew the, the, the lid off of Epstein. No, <laughs> no, they didn't. We, everybody knew about him. Everybody, you know, everybody knew what he was and they knew because of the 
really dogged reporting of the Miami Herald. This was journalism. This wasn't some goofy conspiracy theory that let people know about this. And anything that Q did allege about Epstein, you know, stuff about the tunnels and satanic rituals, none of that stuff is really proven to be true. So I, I always ask people to just boil it down to the necessities, boil it down to the simplest things and just ask, does it have to be a conspiracy? Could it be just a simple confluence of somebody who was determined not to face accountability and a badly run prison? And I think you immediately start to back away from the more conspiratorial explanations if you do that. I have one last quick question. Sure. What did that uh, Gambino crime boss do? How did he help <laughs> Hillary Clinton? You know, that is such an interesting thing. And it, it's, you know, he was, uh, the guy who, who shot him, Anthony Camello, was found uh, incompetent to stand trial. So he he clearly was, was going through some sort of mental illness. Um, I don't know all the extent of it, but I know that he was not suitable to be tried. And what you can say about Camello is the, is the same thing that you can say about almost all of the QAnon related crimes is that this, these were people who believed that they were in danger. They believed they were in danger. They believed that children were in danger or they believed that the United States was in danger. And what they did in a very strange way was sort of the most logical thing that they could have done, which was try to make the danger stop, which, which was to um, confront the the source of the danger before things could get too bad and you know camello really believed that frank Kelly was part of the deep state i have no idea why uh Hugh never talked about the mafia you know the, the mafia is not really much of a going concern anymore frank Kelly wasn't wasn't well known he was he purposefully stayed under the radar you know i i don't know i i don't know what it was that pointed to this particular guy being part of the deep state. I mean, I suspect only the actual shooter knows, and I doubt if maybe even he knows. It, it's a it's a fascinating case. I, I the the idea of the world of the mafia and the world of QAnon uh, accidentally merging is just fascinating to me. But that will have to be for uh, another day and another <laughs> podcast. Uh, Mike, you've been very generous with your time. Oh, sure. um, before you run here, uh, tell our listeners uh, how they can read more of your work. Sure. Um, I am, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, RothschildMD, uh, just my last name and then my first and middle initials. I'm not a doctor. You know, that's, that's not where that comes from. Um, I post everything I do there, uh, all the freelancing I do. I do a lot of work for the website, The Daily Dot. Um, I do a little bit of other freelancing, obviously book updates will be there, and uh, I'm working on some other projects that hopefully I will have some good news on sooner rather than later. Excellent. Well, thank you again. Yeah, thank oh, sure. You. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Keep up the interesting work, uh, be well, and we'll, we'll, we'll catch up with you down the line. That sounds great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Mike Rothschild, and uh, that was very interesting. I have to admit, I, I didn't know some of that stuff, particularly about the early financial scam 
origins connected to it. I really did not know very much about that. And I think that's fascinating. Oh, we should do a whole episode on the Iraqi dinar scam. Yeah. I it mean, rules. It, yeah. And uh, it, um, I want to say it did briefly become like associated with Q because there was like the grifters who like latched on to like Trump at one point said, oh, all currencies will be on a level playing field. And like the DNR, like the scammers latched onto that as like, oh, he's going to revalue the currency. Right. And doesn't that also connect up with a bunch of conspiracy theories about, for example, uh, Gaddafi and Libya and some of these, you know, Middle East dictators who wanted to eschew the petrodollar and, and kind of hold on to the dinar i mean i mean there stopped. are ways that that, that that does connect and there's like saddam who like broke from yeah. the u.s dollar for the euro and stuff like that but that was not the only factor going into like the invasion and the same with oh, libya yeah. you know it's not it's not necessarily that libya is like pan-african or anything like that it's the fact that the, it's a state resistant to like the whims of the empire you know it's not necessarily even you know we talk about uh, in a later episode coming up we talk about north korea it's not necessarily north korea's resources that make it an enemy it's the fact that north korea is defiant that makes it an enemy you know mm -hmm. well yeah well so okay there you but have yeah. it but we, we we've we've had uh we've, we've done several q anon episodes and we we just released our martin gettys one and now we have the rothschild one coming out and i think it's safe to say that we probably we're not done with q anon but oh, no. for right now i think we've probably closed the chapter on this and uh we, you know when when i'm I, they're still going to be around and stuff's still going to be happening and we'll be covering it. Uh, oh, I, I'm not sure how much left we, we can say about it at this point, but uh, it's we'll certainly... We'll at least be back when the book's out, so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested to, to see that book. I'm, I'm interested to... Yeah, I mean, at this point, it seems like QAnon is just kind of on a holding pattern, just waiting for... Uh, the next narrative to unfurl, and uh, it's, uh, I, I think they're here to say, stay. I think we're going to see a lot of splinter groups. Uh, I, you know, I think we'll probably see other insurrection type activities, and uh, I don't know. I, like I said, I, I, I foresee decades of, of asymmetric civil war going on, and uh, it's not going to be like the first civil war. It's not going to be anywhere even close. It's going to be a lot of decentralized militias at odds with each other. Uh, you know, it's, I think Black Lives Matter will be drawn into it. Antifa will be drawn into it. Uh, posting. What's that? Going to be posting. You're wrong. Yeah. World War Three will be who can post the best. <laughs> Well, so I don't know. I guess uh, unless you have something else to say, I guess we'll let oh. our listeners get back to their wonderful lives. You have a wonderful life, you fucking piece of shit. Anyway, uh, no, we're not done with Q. We're talking about the Scambino crime boss at some point. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that, I'm gonna have to do some serious research. I'm coming back to this, and, and by com- by I'm coming back to this, I mean I'm making you do a bunch of work so I can talk about this. Yeah, no, I, I want to do it. Uh, the thing is, right now he's still uh, in trial. I'm sure they're working out a plea, but we're we're just at that point now where not a lot of information has been released about it. And so it's, it's hard. To, I mean, basically, we know he was a QAnon guy. He had wrote stuff on his hand in court. And, but we really, to this point, do not know the level of connection there was between him and Gambino. And right. so it's, there's, just a, there's a limit right now on, on how much we can know about this. Take your Bitcoin and pay for some FOIA documents. Yeah, yeah. Big asshole. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, that's, yeah. Speaking of which, we need to do an episode on cryptocurrency. Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. It's a scam, everyone. Yeah, blockchain is a scam. What? No, dude. Blockchain, is the, blockchain is the future. Own. Blockchain is going to be a major part of the future. If there are some uh, free market scams going on with altcoins surrounding blockchain sure and is there a problem with energy usage uh absolutely but blockchain is here to stay the sooner you realize that the happier you will be jim i heard it was controlled by israel oh well that's the end of the episode folks good night i I guess that has to be right no good night all right goodbye Goodbye. Goodbye.